The Story of the Bathkeeper. It's not really a punishment, Father Pascasius told the physician hurriedly. Mm, said the doctor non-committally, prodding the priest exactly where the pain was sharpest. Ow! Pascasius was unable to speak for a few moments, but then continued. They need help down south, he said, wincing. Mm-hmm, said the doctor. Cough. Pascasius obliged, and then couldn't speak for several minutes. So Lawrence lost out then, asked the doctor, in an effort to take his patient's mind off the problem. <coughs> so it seems, said Pascasius. God chose Symmachus, said the doctor, watching as his patient coughed again. The bishops chose Symmachus, muttered Pascasius. Isn't that the same thing? asked the doctor as he prodded the sore side once again. The bishops would say so. Pascasius took as deep a breath as he was able. They say I sin in not only preferring Lawrence for Bishop of Rome in the first place, but in continuing to do so. I am arrogantly speaking out against God's choice, they say. Hence, they're sending you south. Yes. Pascasius pulled his cloak about him and sat morosely, waiting for the doctor's verdict. I think it suits their sense of humour, he added, watching the doctor rifle around among a cupboard full of mysterious medical supplies. If I don't recant my supposed sin before I die, which may be very soon, here he coughed again as if on cue, I cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. My soul will be condemned to the pits of hell. So they are sending me south, as if to send me on my way. Downwards, he added, as the doctor seemed entirely uninterested in the current peril of his immortal soul. It seems a small sin to condemn a man for eternity, said the doctor. Anyway... Why don't you just tell them you've changed your mind? Because I haven't, said the unhappy priest. God knows my innermost thoughts and feelings, and I cannot change them. The doctor shook his head. I doubt very much your God will punish you with eternal hellfire for a minor preference, he said, without much hope of convincing his patient. He was starting to be more concerned for the health of the man's mind than his body. Pascasius had not missed the reference to your God and narrowed his eyes at the doctor. For a moment he thought about pushing it, but he changed his mind. The doctor was a good man and he himself was apparently going to hell anyway. Why pursue one recalcitrant pagan who might be able to help his last few years on earth be slightly more pleasant? The doctor seemed unaware of his slip and had returned to thinking about medical matters. It looks to me like pleuritis, he said, pulling out a flask and a small pot of unguent. Drink oxymel, that's vinegar and honey mixed together, and anoint the painful area with this oil and go to the public baths regularly. Do they have public baths down south? asked Pascasius glumly, determined to feel sorry for himself. Actually, they have a number of natural hot springs which are excellent for bathing and will probably do you even more good, said the doctor happily ushering his unhappy patient out of his office. He watched the bowed figure of the priest walk away down the street and shook his head sadly. Getting away from the politics of Rome was probably the best cure the ageing man could wish for. The journey south was long and hard, 
and although his fever went down, by the time Father Pascasius reached the small town where he would be based, his ribs hurt worse than ever, and his persistent cough was so bad he was struggling to speak. The oxymel was revolting but seemed to help, and the oil was pleasant. But the one trip to the public baths he had managed to squeeze in before leaving Rome had made him feel much clearer, so the first thing he did when he arrived in his new home was to find out where the nearest hot spring was located. The doctor had been right. There appeared to be several hot springs scattered about the region, and the nearest was a seaside grotto in a natural cave not far from Pascasia's new church. The locals told him it was the cave where the nymph Calypso had held the Greek hero Ulysses captive for seven years. Pascasius considered pointing out that the Greeks had their own cave, which they were equally insistent was the cave in which their Odysseus had been held, but decided to let it lie. He was too tired and too weary of wrangling with others to devote any energy to debating old myths and legends. Of the several people he spoke to, none were willing to lead him there, and many seemed reluctant to talk much about it. One even suggested that he go to the next nearest spring, which was a full day's walk away, rather than this grotto. Pascasius supposed that they were put off by its long history as a pagan site, though that surprised him. People were not normally so easily put off a good bathing site. Perhaps it sported some particularly unpleasant pagan images that no one had bothered to remove. Luckily, the directions to the spring were fairly simple, and Pascasius was able to find it on his own. The path down to the grotto was steep but well-worn. He wondered if it was simply the awkward path that had put the locals off coming. The natural cave was fronted by an ancient stone façade and surrounded by pagan votive offerings, many of them small female figures often seated. They looked very old. Pascasius wondered briefly who had left them, and whether their pagan gods had answered their prayers. The hot springs were located within the cave. A narrow fissure in the rock of the cliff opened out to a space filled with the smell of sulphur. Some industrious ancients had built in a large semicircular pool to catch the water and make bathing easier, with steps leading down to the green water. Ancient sculptures peeked out from odd nooks and crannies in the rocks, Lion's heads and dancing nymphs mainly, cavorting about the cave just on the edge of sight. There was no sign of life other than himself. Pascasius could hear the sound of the nearby sea, along with the rush of the spring, echoing through the empty hall of the cave. It was very peaceful, if a little lonely, after the busy public baths he was used to visiting in Rome. He was eyeing the slippery steps and wondering where to leave his cloak and belt, when he heard a polite cough from behind him. An attendant, clean, well-dressed and pleasant-looking, stood just behind him. He was of middling years, with his hair just starting to turn grey. A towel was slung over one arm. "'Can I help you, sir?' he asked. "'Yes, thank you,' said Pascasius, brightening. He sat down on a nearby rock and allowed the attendant to take off his shoes and help him off with his clothes. Everything was laid out on a little wooden table nearby. The man then helped the old priest down the steps into the water. It didn't look too appealing, being green and extremely smelly, but once he was in, Pascasius realised it felt wonderful. It was warm but not too hot, the slight movement of the water in this man-made pool refreshing, and even the smell started to seem less unpleasant as he got used to it. 
After a coughing fit, he found his chest felt very slightly clearer than it had been, and the water eased the pain in his side. Thank you, he said with feeling to the attendant. What's your name? Cassius, said the attendant, standing very still near the water's edge. Do you live nearby? asked Pascasius. My wife is settled not far from the church on our farm, answered the man. It's a fair way for you to walk to work, then. It's not a problem, said Cassius calmly. Would you like me to scrape your back, sir? As if from nowhere, he produced a strigil. Why, thank you, yes, said Pascasius. This was an unexpected benefit. Having expected to find no one else around, he was delighted to find a few little Roman luxuries still available to him. Cassius took off his outer robe and sat down on the steps with the priest, scraping not just his back but his arms and legs as well. As his hand moved in and out of the water, Pascosius noted burn marks on his wrists and arms. They looked nasty, but old and presumably long-heeled. Scraping done, Pascasius relaxed for a little while until his skin began to wrinkle when he motioned for Cassius to help him out again. The man stood silently and respectfully while Pascasius toweled himself down and then helped him to get dressed and even assisted him back up the steep path to the road. The priest thanked the attendant once more. I will be back, he said happily, as often as I am able to spare the time. Of course, sir, said Cassius. I will be here. Pascasius was as good as his word and returned regularly to the spring. Every time he found Cassius patiently waiting, towel in hand. Every time the little wooden table and the strigil would be there when he needed them. Conversation was little but friendly, and he found himself growing very fond of the man. After the first visit, he made sure to bring some coins for a tip, but Cassius would not accept them. Every time he told the priest that there was no charge for men of God, and to donate the money to the church. This was not entirely unusual, but Pascasius became increasingly concerned about how the man could be making any money to live on. He apparently lived some few hours away, and he was always at the baths. It seemed impossible that he could be earning a living anywhere else. The baths themselves, though beautiful and obviously well known for many centuries, were always empty of any customers save himself, which struck him as rather odd, but he was so relieved to have a chance of some peace and quiet, away from the constant demands of his flock at the church, that he simply accepted it. Eventually, though, he felt he really must give Cassius something to thank him for all his kind assistance over what was now several months. The man would not accept money, so Pascasius decided to bring him some bread instead. He took two loaves that had not yet been consecrated from the church's supply and set off happily for the baths. When he got there, Cassius was waiting, towel in hand, as usual. After the usual pleasantries, Pascasius offered him the bread, but to his surprise the man once again refused. "'Thank you so much, good father, but I cannot,' he said sadly. "'It's all right,' said Pascasius encouragingly. "'It's not been consecrated. I know it's from the church, that's why it's unleavened, but it's just bread.' "'I am so grateful, sir,' said Cassius, tears in his eyes. I cannot accept. Why not, man, cried Pascasius, starting to get quite annoyed. I've told you, it's just bread. I swear it has been nowhere near the Holy Sacrament. 
Take it home to your wife and have it with your dinner, or eat it on the way, or whatever you choose. Only let me repay you in some small way for your kind service to me. I can't go home to my wife, said Cassius, his voice breaking. I must stay here and serve. But if you would like to help me, please, take this bread back and consecrate it, and offer it up to God. Perhaps if you do, you will not find me here again, and then you will know that you have helped me. What in the Lord's name are you raving about, man? demanded Pascasius, properly cross now. He had never had so much trouble paying someone for a simple service. This was my job, and for my sins I must keep doing it, said Cassius. But perhaps if a holy man like you were to pray for me and offer up this bread on my behalf, maybe my sins can be forgiven. Pascasius looked down for a moment at the bread in his hands. He opened his mouth to respond, but when he looked up again, Cassius had gone. He went to put the bread on the little wooden table and go look for him, but the table had gone too. So had the towel and the small strigil. The cave was entirely empty, except for the ancient pagan images of lion's heads and nubile nymphs that stared down at the old man in mocking silence. At a loss, Pascasius stood for a few moments, wondering if Cassius would come back, but deep down, he knew that he wouldn't. Slowly, the old man clambered alone out of the cave and made his wheezing way unassisted up the steep path back to the road, tucking the bread back into the small basket he had brought it in. He walked the long walk back to the town in a daze and returned to the church to pray and ask God for guidance on what to do now. One of the deaconesses was sweeping the floor when he arrived back at the church. She asked where Pascasius had come from, as he looked tired and out of breath. From the Grotto of the Nymphs, said the priest distractedly. Oh, I wouldn't go there, father, said the deaconess. Didn't anyone tell you? We don't go there. A few mentioned a preference for the other spring, said Pascasius, but the walk is so much longer. I assumed they didn't like the steep climb down to the baths. The deaconess laughed. Anyone put off by a steep path wouldn't last long around here, she said. No, those baths are haunted, everyone knows that. Nymphs are not real, you know, said Pascasius firmly. Not by nymphs, father, said the deaconess. By Cassius. Pascasius' heart beat louder in his chest, though by this point he could hardly say he was surprised. Who is Cassius? he asked, keeping his voice as level as possible. He was a farmer, said the deaconess, pausing in her sweeping to tell the story. He lived not far from here with his wife. They had no children. Got into an argument with your predecessor as priest here. I'm not sure what it was about. Some minor difference of opinion. I believe the priest felt the family were not observing their Lenten fasts well enough. Anyway, the worst part was, after this argument, Cassius stopped coming to church. His wife continued to worship, though she looked most unhappy about it, but Cassius simply refused to come. And then he died, still at odds with the church, and presumably now he burns in hell, which is ironic, as he died in a fire. The deaconess had obviously not been close with Cassius. She told the story more as a matter of local interest than a family tragedy. What happened to his wife? asked Pascasius, wondering if she needed help. 
She's remarried now. She was still young at the time, came the reply. You've seen her in church on Sundays. She sometimes wears a black shawl in memory of her first husband. Pascasius heaved a sigh of relief, knowing now it was only Cassius he had to worry about. Thank you, he said to the deaconess. And then, after a moment, Do you really think he's burning in hell? The deaconess shrugged. I suppose he can't be in hell and haunting the baths at the same time, can he? She said cheerfully. So perhaps not. It seems a small sin, said Pascasius thoughtfully, tears brimming in his eyes. Not attending church, said the deaconess, looking shocked. I wouldn't call that small myself, father. She picked up her broom again and started sweeping vigorously, as if to prove her own dedication to the church. I can think of much bigger sins, said Pascasius sadly. Perhaps all is not lost for those of us who sin in small ways. Perhaps there is a way we can work off our sins after death. A way we can be purged of them and so find our way eventually to the kingdom of heaven. You would know better than I, father, sniffed the deaconess, taking her broom away. There was nothing more to do except what Cassius had asked. Pascasius solemnly offered up daily mass for the man's soul every day for a week, before returning to the spring. He wasn't sure quite what he was hoping for. He missed his friend, not to mention the baths were rather more difficult to use without him. On the other hand, he had been praying fervently all week for the salvation of Cassius' soul. It was with mixed sadness and relief, then, that he found the baths completely and utterly empty. The pagan lions stared down at him in contempt as he dangled his feet in the water and waited. But no one came. Cassius had been saved. Pascasius served out only another year or two in the church before succumbing to the pleuritus, which somehow no amount of bathing or oil rubbing could chase away. When the bishops heard of his demise, they were deeply saddened, not just at the loss of their friend, but because to his dying day he insisted on proclaiming his preference for Bishop Lawrence over God's chosen Bishop of Rome, Symmachus. Such a sin would surely condemn him to hell, they thought. But they might have been comforted if they had taken a journey down south to the Grotto of the Nymphs. It was seldom visited, but if any traveller did happen to stop in at the old baths, they would have found an elderly priest with a persistent cough waiting to assist them, with a towel, a little wooden table, and a small strigil. The End Happy holidays, everybody. So I went for a bit of a change of pace with this month's story. Uh, this is medieval rather than strictly ancient, although it's in that overlap in between kind of the end of what we tend to call late antiquity, which is anything from the second, third, early fourth century through to anything between the fifth, sixth, seventh, maybe even eighth centuries. Uh, and the early medieval period, which kind of substantially overlaps um, with late antiquity. Uh, essentially, we start calling it early medieval once the Western Roman Empire has collapsed. And in places like Britain, where the Romans leave quite early in 410, we tend to start calling it early medieval from a bit earlier on. This story comes from the dialogues of Gregory the Great, uh, who was Pope between 590 and 604 CE or AD. 
So this is essentially right on the cusp between late antiquity, early medieval. At this point, Rome had been reconquered by the Byzantine Empire as well. The Byzantine Empire is the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which continued for another thousand years after the West collapsed. We tend to call it Byzantine Empire or Byzantium because it becomes quite different over the course of those thousand years. It's Greek-speaking, it's Christian, it develops its own culture. Uh, so we tend not to call it the Roman Empire, but it is basically the Eastern Roman Empire. So at this point, Rome and parts of Italy have been reconquered by the Eastern Empire centred in um, Istanbul, what was then Constantinople. I've combined two very similar stories uh, from the dialogues. They're so similar that I suspect they have a common source in ancient folklore because they're very, very similar to each other. They both feature ghostly bathhouse attendants. One takes place in an actual bathhouse building and the other in a hot spring. But I've basically blended them together. And I've given the unnamed priest from the second story the name of the ghostly deacon from the first one. And that's why, of course, it finishes with him becoming a ghost. I've essentially blended the, the two together. And I've given him the same, in inverted commas, sin. Um, so both of these stories are about the idea that it's possible to sort of work off your sins. Uh, the sins in the second story Gregory tells were... Uh, unspecified. The sin in the first was exactly as I have it in the story, choosing the wrong candidate to be Bishop of Rome and insisting that you're still right even when God's choice has been made clear. Um, I tried to give my second character uh, a similarly minor sin. The idea is that they've not done anything too terrible but they've done something that's against kind of the church's rules so they can't go straight to heaven. Bathhouses in this period were not as common as they once were, but recent archaeological research has suggested that there were more of them around than we'd thought. So uh, traditionally the thinking was that bathhouses are you know, a very Roman uh, facility that disappear with the empire, and that's true to a greater or lesser extent in different areas. They're certainly more popular in the east than in the west, but there is some evidence for bathhouses continuing into the medieval period uh, in the west and in Italy. I've basically assumed that they still exist, but there's not as many of them, and they're more likely to be found in larger urban centres. So at the height of the Roman Empire, you'd have bathhouses everywhere. Rich people would have bathhouses in their own homes, you would have them in every town. I've assumed that they are becoming less common. And there's a few reasons for that. They're expensive, they require a certain amount of technology, you need to be able to get the water to them, you need to understand the heating technology that powers them. Some Christians weren't comfortable with them, too much you know, people who are nude or not wearing very much sitting around in hot water together. Um, some Christians thought they might be uh, encouraging sin. Um, and also they tended to be built by rich people uh, as a sort of philanthropic project. The economy goes down, you have fewer rich people, you have fewer bathhouses. So I've assumed that you'd find them in larger urban centres, but not so much in the countryside. But there are a lot of hot springs in southern Italy. I've based my description of this one on a real spring. It's not exactly the same. I've invented a spring inspired by a real one, primarily because I haven't been lucky enough to visit one. 
if I ever get the chance to visit uh, a real hot spring in southern Italy, I will happily uh, describe it properly. But this is based on the Grotto of the Nymphs in Calabria, in southern Italy, and I've taken the description from Jennifer Larson's book Greek Nymphs, Myth, Cult and Lore, and then I've just added some inventions of my own. So this particular spring isn't exactly a real one, but it's very, very similar to this particular Grotto of the Nymphs. And as I mentioned in the story, there's more than one Grotto of the Nymphs, and there's more than one place where Odysseus is supposedly held captive by Calypso. His Latin name is Ulysses, his Greek name is Odysseus, this is, of course, the hero of Homer's Odyssey. So I had that uh, described in the story, with Romans calling him Ulysses and Greeks calling him Odysseus. The towel that I refer to several times obviously would not be a modern terry cloth towel, but the Romans did have uh, items of cloth that they would use as towels. Uh, the strigil is a small metal instrument that you would use to scrape your skin. So what you'd do is you'd get nice and hot, you'd release your pores, and then you would take this little curved implement and you would scrape it along your skin to scrape all the sweat and the grime off your skin. And you would need somebody else, of course, to do your back. So that could be a friend or a relative, or it could be a slave or a free attendant at the bathhouse. The votives that I mentioned are um, items, statues, sculptures that are left by people as a gift to the gods. Um, they're often found at healing shrines. And healing shrines would often be found associated with waters, with hot waters, with springs, with cleansing waters. So in my story, I've assumed that in the past there has been some kind of pagan healing shrine at the site that is no longer used, but you can still see the votives. So little sculptures, uh, little images that people have left. They would often leave the body part they wanted healed, but not always. Uh, and in Jennifer Larson's book, she mentions that this particular grotto, a lot of them are in the form of a seated woman. Uh, so that's why I've described them that way. I've given my character Pleuritus, which is an ancient name for pleurisy. Pleurisy is still an illness now. The, the exact sort of illness that's known as pleurisy has varied over the years, um, but there has been some kind of chest condition recognised as pleuritus or pleurisy ever since Hippocrates. Um, it involves generally a pain in the side, a cough, a fever. Modern pleurisy can be an illness that you get by itself or it can be indicative of lung cancer. So that's sort of what I've assumed my character has. He has this persistent pleuritus that will not go away. Um, so underneath that is the suggestion that he may have something more serious that ancient medicine isn't able to diagnose uh, and that within a couple of years um, kills him. But pleurisy... Uh, or pleuritis would be treated in the way that I described, so with the oxymel, uh, the vinegar and honey, uh, with the rubbing on of oils and with recommending trips to the bathhouse. I've also described a few bits and pieces about the early church, so there were deaconesses in the early church. Whether or not they were formally ordained, we don't know. The early church didn't have all the formal rules. Um, this is the Catholic Church, of course. Uh, all the formal rules and traditions that it has now. But we know that there were women who served the church and were given this title of deaconess. 
Life could be very difficult for widows in the ancient and medieval worlds, and a lot of the early Christian church's charitable giving was towards widows who had no one to support them. For a woman with no man to support her and no money of her own, it could be very difficult. There's the oldest profession that you can turn to, but there's not many other ways for a woman to make a living. So that's why I had Pascasius check on the, the welfare of the widow in the story. The unleavened bread is, of course, the bread for Roman Catholic communion. At the point in the Mass where it is consecrated, it becomes the body of Christ. But before that point, uh, it is just bread without yeast in it. So that's why um, I had Pascasius try and reassure uh, Cassius that it's it's not Jesus' body. It's just bread. <laughs> hasn't hasn't been turned into Jesus yet. I also included a pagan character, the Doctor, uh, Non-Christian religions were outlawed in the Roman Empire by the Emperor Theodosius in 384 CE, uh, and that continued to be the case in the Byzantine Empire. But paganism didn't die out overnight, uh, and the pagans didn't all suddenly disappear um, in just a few years. Paganism continued, just sort of gradually shrinking uh, over a period of time. And there is evidence that there were still uh, small numbers of pagans living and worshipping throughout late antiquity and, and even into the early medieval period. So I made my doctor um, a pagan. He's following the ancient Greek ways um, and he would probably be, if not Greek, certainly trained by Greeks, uh, given that he's a doctor because uh, the profession of medicine was very much dominated by Hippocrates and Greek ways of thinking. Although, of course, you've got Galen, uh, the Roman period author um, from the East, um, from Pergamum, who was a huge influence on medical thinking right up into the early modern period. So this is an early Christian ghost story. And early Christian afterlife belief is really key to what's going on in this story. I chose it because it's Christmas and this is a much nicer story. <laughs> My first two stories were both pretty grim. Uh, the first one was pretty scary and the second one was all about dead bodies. So this is a much less scary, uh, much kind of more warm and fuzzy ghost story. Belief in ghosts among early Christians varied enormously. So St. Augustine denied that ghosts existed at all. Many early Christians did not believe in them. They considered belief in ghosts to be a pagan belief. This is because, as far as they were concerned, when you died, your soul either went to heaven or it went to hell. Those are the options. It's not going to hang around on the earth. There would be no reason for your soul to hang around on earth. Ancient ghost belief generally... Ghosts hang around because they haven't been buried properly or because they've died in some traumatic way or before their time or whatever. So for the Christians, there's no reason um, that that would be the case. Unbaptized souls go to hell, so that covers infants who die before baptism and pagans. Uh, baptized Christians, uh, if they are good, go to heaven. St. Augustine also suggested that there were four types of sinners and that sins would be purged in a fire after death. What we can see here is the very beginnings of what would become much later the doctrines of purgatory and hell. So in the later medieval period, purgatory is a third option in the afterlife. So souls that are irredeemably wicked go to hell. 
but the souls of people who've sinned a bit, but not totally horribly, could go to purgatory, where they would be burned in fire and tortured to cleanse them of their sin. And then once their sins had been cleansed, they could go on to heaven. And much later, this is what led to all sorts of dubious medieval practices involving rich people thinking they could somehow buy themselves less time in purgatory and things like that. At this point, that idea has not yet been defined. And we can see in this text that idea that really bad sins get you eternal punishment, but less bad ones could be redeemed is just developing. And that's really key to both of these short stories that I've adapted here. It's the idea that sins can be pardoned after death if they are not too terrible. And that's why I've made sure when I was inventing a second sin to keep it pretty minor. So this section of Gregory the Great's dialogues is dealing with what happens to the soul after death in the form of a philosophical dialogue. Uh, this is more modelled after Cicero than Plato. So when Plato writes philosophical dialogue, he has lots of speakers usually, and he has Socrates asking questions of the people he's talking to to try and draw out the ideas he wants to get out of them. Cicero uses it a bit differently. So in Cicero's dialogue on divination, he only has two speakers, himself and his brother. He has his brother put forward a whole bunch of views about divination, so foretelling the future. And then he spends the second half of the dialogue with himself, the speaker, he's given his own name, refuting all those ideas and basically saying divination is a load of rubbish, which is interesting in its own right for many reasons. This seems more like a Cicero-type dialogue, where one of the speakers is Gregory, and he seems to be implying that whatever he's saying is what he thinks is, is correct. So here he talks about how the souls of sinners are punished under the earth in hell, and he's setting out the concept. He doesn't seem to be assuming that that's the case. He's got to kind of argue for it. He's got to say, no, no, this is what happens. There's another story um, told in a section just close to these, uh, about a dead man crying out from the grave, I burn, I burn, because he's being punished for his sins. And the moral of that story is that being buried in sacred ground won't save you. If you sin, you will burn in hell no matter what. And that's partly why I put a reference to burns and fire in my story. So the man in my story died in a fire, so he has burn marks on his wrists and arms, but that could also imply the burning off of sins. It could be that rather than the physical fire, that that's where his sins are being slowly burnt off over time. So what Gregory's doing in these two stories is basically setting out his case for what would later, much later, become the idea of purgatory. The idea that you could work and somehow cleanse yourself of sin even after death. And that's what both of these ghosts are doing. They're working in the bathhouse and in working as a ghost and in continuing to work and having good Christians pray for them, which is also key, they are able after death to cleanse themselves of their remaining sin and then go on to heaven. So if you're interested in further reading, um, these stories are adapted from Gregory the Great's Dialogues 4.40 and 4.55, so Book 4, Section 40, Book 4, Section 55. I originally came across them in Andrew Joins's book, Medieval Ghost Stories, uh, and that has um, very good modern English translations. They've been slightly abbreviated of just the ghost stories, so just the short sections dealing with the bath keepers. 
Alternatively, uh, if you want to read the full section um, from Gregory the Great's dialogues, the whole text is available in a somewhat older translation for free online. Uh, this is from Tertullian.org. That's T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N dot O-R-G. It's a website uh, that collects primary sources relating to the early church fathers. And there's loads of texts available on there. So that's a good source for a more complete version of the text. Uh, I also had a look at an article by Jonathan Wright for the Catholic Herald Online on deaconesses. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, Jennifer Larson's Greek nymphs myth cult lore. I hope you enjoyed this slightly kind of softer, warmer, fuzzier ghost story uh, for this month. Something a bit nicer for the Christmas holidays. Um, I will be back next month uh, with something probably a bit spookier. Um, and also some exciting news about an event I'm doing in Birmingham uh, on the 14th of February. Uh, but in the meantime, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Solstice, Happy Saturnalia, possibly that should be Yo Saturnalia, uh, or whatever you want to celebrate at this time of year. Uh, and Happy New Year, uh, and I'll see you in 2020. Creepy Classics is written and performed by Juliet Harrison, with music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It is produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. Mm -hmm.